In less than two minutes, a fire can be fatal. The heat and smoke from a fire can melt clothing to your skin and turn a room completely dark. You won't be able to see, think, or breathe. Join expert fire instructor and consultant Mike Schlattman, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and owner of Fire Consulting and Case Review International, and Donna Ingram, a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and instructor with over 30 years experience in fire investigation and insurance as they speak with leaders in the fire safety and fire investigation fields. Let's talk about fire behavior, fire safety, and who is out there working for you to be protected from the devastation of fires and those set as a crime. Get tips on how to keep safe what to do in the aftermath of a fire, and handling insurance matters. And now, here are your hosts, Mike and Donna. Hello, and welcome to Fire Clue. This is Mike Slapman. I'm honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and I have over 45 years as a fire investigator. And this is Donna Ingram, and I'd like to say this is our first show uh, from a prior program we had, and we're so glad to be back. And it's Fire Clue, the podcast. You can find us on at fireclue.com, just like you could with our prior show. We've got a little bit of a different format. Um, we're going to talk about fire behavior, effect, investigation, safety, arson, prosecution, and a little bit about insurance claims. Uh, we're going to have a wide array of guests and we're just so happy to be back on the air. We certainly are. This is a reincarnation of our old speaking of fire, which you can also pick up those 18 months of uh, shows, prior shows. Now, we are honored to have a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, Thomas J. Fee of Fee Investigations in, in California. Uh, he has got over 45 years as a fire investigator. He was uh, the chief of the Pomona Fire Department. He was uh, on their bomb unit for 25 years and a supervisor for 15 years. Uh, he's he's the, still the training chairman of the California Conference of Arson Investigators, CCAI, at, which uh, trains extensively throughout the year. Um, I'm a member of that uh, that chapter, and I, or it's also an IAAI chapter, and um, and I I urge everybody to uh, join CCAI uh, if you want to continue your training. It it gives you um, uh, extensive training as well as IAAI has their CFITrainer.net, of course, and I always urge everybody to go there. Uh, and the IAAI is having some virtual classes too. So Tom was a, um, the president of the International for two years, which is unusual. Um, only at, when it, in its very beginning was a, a person that was two years, but the board of directors, uh, due to some circumstances, wanted him to come back as a two-year uh, president, and I was uh, always honored to be his friend. So he's a certified fire investigator with both the IAAI and the CCAI. So, Tom, welcome to Fire Clue. Well, thank you very much, Mike. It's my honor to be here with you today. Well, I appreciate you, sir. You were, um, you were with us um, 
during our speaking of fire days too. And um, today we want to talk to, since this is uh, for the general public, we want to talk to you about what is what does a fire investigator do? And I know that there's two different kinds. There's a there's a public investigator and there's a private investigator. So can you tell us about fire investigators in general? Sure. Your public investigator in, in NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, is currently drafting up a suggested way for public agencies to create or form their private in, or their fire investigation units. Uh, but currently it's done in a variety of different ways across uh, the country. When you get into big metro, uh, metropolitan areas like Los Angeles and San Diego and uh, Long Beach, they run their fire investigation units through the fire departments. Uh, now, that's not always the case, even with large agencies, because Los Angeles County Fire Department, or Sheriff's Department, one of the largest sheriff's departments in the nation, has an arson and bomb detail. And they handle the fire investigation for all of the jurisdictions in which Los Angeles County uh, covers. Uh, and as I said, that's a very large uh, number of people. Los Angeles County itself uh, currently has a population of nine and a half million people. That's a pretty awesome number to look at when you're looking at just one county within a state. So you can see that that uh, these agencies uh, are faced with with a variety of different ways to handle it. And then you have the other departments that choose which way they want to go. And in some cases, they combine a fire personnel individual and a police personnel individual. So they'll have fire and police working together as a team to do their fire investigation. And even though many of them focus or say their focus is on arson, and if it's not criminal, they don't care, that's really not the case their chief cares because we build our statistics in this country on the information that's provided at these fire scenes. And the statistics become important in that that's how we make the general public safe. That's uh, right. That's for uh, we, fire prevention, build, right? Fire, fire prevention, well, right? Yes, and somewhat fire prevention, but we build our products that we use daily. We build our laws. We build everything on what the cause of fires uh, are. So if we're not doing a good job out there coming up with the actual cause of the fire, uh, 
then we can't adequately cover the safety of the individuals in the products they buy and the ordinances that that areas pass for an example if you're in a rural area you the ordinance says you've got to clear brush for a certain number of feet from your house and uh, when you get into a metropolitan area that doesn't necessarily pertain then what we're looking at is giving you safe products in your house, giving you a, a TV that doesn't burst into flames in the middle of the night and kill everybody on the second floor. So it's it's a constant turnover, and the importance of fire investigation is built around the safety of this of the people in this nation. So it's very important that somebody get out there and identify what caused this fire. Now, I started in the fire service over 55 years ago, over 60 years ago, and uh, at the time it was common, well, I can't tell, but blame it on electrical. Blame it on kids playing with matches. Blame it on whatever. Nobody ever challenged it. Nobody ever looked at it from another point of view. Nobody ever looked at the work of that individual. We just wrote something down and drove away. And over time, we realized that how much we were hurting and doing a wrong service for the people in this country. And fire chiefs throughout the nation got together and started working on ways to build better statistical basis to help the general public stay safe from fire. Speaking, so, of, uh, speaking of that, Tom, um, you're, that's the public side. Uh, private investigators also uh, investigate uh, what causes fires. Um, and does that also contribute to um, identifying uh, products that are unsafe? Yes. We, when, you, when you start doing it from a private viewpoint or, or you're then working for insurance companies, uh, law firms, big uh, manufacturing companies, uh, public utilities, there's a variety of people out there that when the finger gets pointed at them, they want to make sure that the person pointing the finger isn't making a mistake. So they will hire a private investigator, somebody who has the experience, knowledge, and education to uh, properly assess what's going on and uh, and and report back to them that their product either caused this or uh, in the case of an insurance company, if they're insured caused this, then they know that uh, that the source is, is accurate. And that's what they're looking for. They want to make sure that that they're getting the right information uh, in the end here. 
And then a number of years ago, an ugly head jumped up called subrogation. <laughs> and they found out that, well, maybe if your refrigerator caused the house to burn down that I'm insuring, the insurance company for that refrigerator should be responsible for part or all of this cost. So they started one insurance agency suing another insurance agency. They call it subrogation. Uh, if your product caused this, give me back my money. And it just comes down to the old dollar sign that many, many, many things come down to. And uh, there's a lot of stuff going back and forth that way. We also find that that uh, some insurance, well, all insurance policies say that if you intentionally cause the fire, we don't have to pay you. And each insurance company wants to make sure that there's no insurance fraud going on here. Somebody can't sell it to somebody else, so they're going to sell it to the insurance company. And they want the private investigator to look at that aspect and say, yeah, this was a refrigerator, not the insured burning his house down. So there's a there's a specific task for both public and private, but it all blends together. One helps the other. I know I've went out on fires that were determined to be accidental or undetermined and found out that they were arson and vice versa. You go out thinking, well, somebody set this fire, and then you, with the proper amount of investigation, uh, you determine that this was an accidental fire, not an arson. Right. And I wanted to ask you about uh, incendiary fires that's, that's uh, set fires. Do you believe that, um, well, two things. One is I believe in arson units when they have police and fire together. Uh, to adequately investigate things and make sure that um, this isn't a set fire. Secondly, do you believe that um, incendiary fires or arson fires are underreported, or do you think they're um, are statistically um, correct when when FBI says there's so many or whatever? Well, I think they're underreported. Uh, I think there's a lot of them out there that we don't figure out correctly, and there's there's more than one reason for that. Uh, uh, we look at, we've got a lot of people going out there that aren't properly educated, but they're forced into the position. The chief says, you, you are my fire investigator starting Monday morning, and and here's your badge, and here's your gun, and there you go. Uh, education takes time, and uh, it also involves experience. So when you first get assigned to these details, you're going to miss a lot of things. And no matter how much you think you know about fire investigation, 
uh, if you're honest and you're out there looking at fires, you'll find out that you're learning something new every day. And that, I thought, was going to taper off after 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years, and it hasn't. I still learn something new every time I get involved in a fire investigation. Me too, and we've got we've got over forty five years, uh, you know, in this business. Um, Einstein said, "When you stop learning, you start dying." So I don't want to die yet, so I'm going to keep learning. And I know CCAI and you being the training uh, director for them uh, trains constantly. Um, your CCAI is a good example. Um, what do you think the industry, fire investigations uh, industry needs? Um, I know you said more training, and I agree with that. Uh, is there anything else that you can see? Um, I know experience would be great because there's some fire investigators out there that are being put on the street straight out of being in the fire department in su- suppression, and they're not getting the proper training. What do you think the minimum is, Tom? The IAAI CFI or the CCAI CFI, which means Certified Fire Investigator. What do you think? What do you think the industry needs? Well, I the CFI was always a goal that you wanted to achieve at some point in your career to say that hey, I've hit this level. But I know when I first started doing fire investigation, uh, I. I was mandated to do the job long before I had the qualifications to apply for CFI anywhere. And most CFIs, IAAIs and CCAIs, always said, well, you have to have been to court at least twice before you can apply for a CFI. And that still stands we still say you've got to get out there. So you've got to learn how to do this job and be able to convince a jury that uh, you know what you're talking about. So I don't think we can say you need to be a CFI first, and that's what's happening in this industry a lot. A lot of insurance companies say, well, we won't hire you unless you're a CFI. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're just getting started in this, you you don't qualify to be a CFI yet. That doesn't mean that you don't know how to do this job or that you're not learning how to do this job. And, and I hate to say this, but I think you have to look at age, uh, not not so much years of age of the person, but years of age doing this job. If you've been doing this job for a year you and you diligently tried to learn, you probably are in a position where you're going to be calling a lot of these uh, fires correctly as far as its origin and its cause. On the other hand, if you've been doing this for three years, you're going to be that much better than the guy that's been doing it for one year. And then you go to five years and then 10 years and then 20 years. 
every one of those years is going to add more knowledge, more experience, more exposure to you as somebody that's doing this. One of the great things that NFPA 921 did was say, get your cases peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us looked at that and said, oh, I got to get my report peer reviewed. A good investigator that's learning today will find somebody, one or two or three people that they have confidence in, and they should have them peer reviewing their work from start to finish. If you can bring your peer reviewer out to your fire scene and let them look at it and form independent opinions and then have you explain what you're looking at and what you're seeing, that's a great learning tool. It's a great peer review to help you arrive at the best scientific conclusion that can be reached on this. Uh, it's just a matter of we have to keep teaching, keep training these people to use all the tools that are out there. That's a tool that doesn't cost you anything. That's a tool that your department doesn't have to send you away for. They don't have to bring in overtime for. All you've got to do is have a mentor somewhere close to you that's willing to help you. And Tom, and I'd like to point something out too. You were talking about uh, testimony and over the last, since 1988, when I got into this business, we've watched, although everything is litigious, uh, it's not making it to court uh, on, the, on the private side, on the civil side. And it's cost prohibitive because of fees and expert fees and attorney fees and all of that and dealing with subrogation. Have you seen that out in California, too? Uh, yes. I think there's a, there's a lot of things, though, that are keeping some of our cases out of court today. And uh, some of it is just good work being done. True. There's no reason to go to court if you know what this cause is, you properly report that, you've got the evidence to show that if somebody else takes a look at it, they're going to agree that the job was properly done, that you know what you're doing, and that you arrived at a scientifically based conclusion. And there were days when that wasn't the case. Now, that's changed a little bit over on the civil side, but over on the criminal side, that hasn't changed. The, the criminal investigator can still testify uh, quite frequently. Now, here in California, we used to have to testify twice. We had to testify originally at the preliminary hearing, which was a hearing to see if that person would be held over for trial. And then we had to come back and testify at the trial. They have now cut that back just a little bit so that you don't have to have as many witnesses show up and testify. Sometimes here under Prop 15, the 
the investigating officer can testify as to what the fire origin and cause investigator is going to say. So he doesn't have he or she doesn't have to show up and and testify twice. But come trial, they still show up. So a lot of these cases, you know, they're they're not all getting settled. I've testified six times in the last month, <laughs> and uh, that's unusual for me. Normally, I'll testify once or twice a month, mm-hmm. uh, but when we came out of the COVID thing and the courts opened back up, all these cases that were laying, being held over, all of a sudden we're trying to get on calendar and get settled. <laughs> But I do some criminal defense work, so I'll testify in those. And then I've also did some uh, usually defense work over on the civil side as well. I don't uh, do too much in the early phases of investigation, but when it comes time to go to trial, I get hired and I come in at that point in a case. So usually when I come in, there's a there's about an eighty percent chance that I'm going to testify on that case. Yes, I I agree with that, and 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 I do too. Um, consultation cases, uh, particularly in um, in defense um, cases. Now, I wanted to say this and see if you agree with me. We're about to take a break in a minute, but we got about thirty seconds. Do you agree that you you can and should, if you're a private investigator? work both uh, defense and and plaintiff's work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And, and in most cases, you're going to take whatever comes in. I, I get asked a lot, both in trial and in deposition, well, how much of your work is defense and how much is, is plaintiff? And I just look at them and say, I don't know. I don't even ask what side I'm on. My job is just to bring forth the facts. That's so exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I, I really don't balance it out one way or the other. Now, when I look at my log for the year and go down, I'm heavier on defense right now. <laughs> there was a time when I was far heavier over on the prosecution side. Absolutely. Because when when I worked for the public agency, I was 100% the other way. I, I didn't do any defense work. Right. Well, I, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to take a break here um, because we have to pay the bills. So uh, we have uh, something you need to listen to. So we're going to take a break. So come back to Fire Clue. Fire Consulting and Case Review International, FCI, provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet all litigation requirements and insurance claim needs. We also peer review for other investigative firms to ensure they meet NFPA and ASTM standards. Educational and CEU classes are also available. Contact Fire Consulting and Case Review International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. That's fcifire.com or 913-262-5200. 
Consolidated Fire Investigation Services, CFIS, a nationwide member group of over 200 vetted expert fire investigators, here to meet the needs of the insurance claims industry in origin and cause, investigation, consultation, and legal matters, complying with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Call 888-445-FIRE, that's 888-445-3473, for one-stop access to over 200 fire investigators ready to meet your needs. Welcome back to Fire Clue, the podcast. Uh, We still have Tom on the line with us, and we wanted to change gears a little bit and talk about origin and cause. Tom, can you share with everyone what is origin and cause? Sure. Origin is where your fire starts or the general area where your fire starts. And then cause is what what happened there to put the the heating cycle into uh, application. You've got to have a competent heat source to the material first ignited. So we can't say, for an example, that a static electrical spark is going to set a 2x4 on fire. But we can say that a static electrical spark could cause ignition of gasoline vapors. So we got to know what the material first ignited is, and then we have to know what the heat source was to see that all of that is competent to end up with an open flame combustion. That's the cause of the fire. But far more important than the cause is the origin. And we have a lot of investigators that don't properly learn this profession who go in and they start looking for the cause of the fire. And that's backwards. First you find your origin and then you find your cause. If you're never able to identify your origin of the fire, you can't even get, well, you can guess at the cause, but all that is is a guess. You've got no scientific basis to say this is what happened in this fire scene. And unfortunately today with the people that don't get the proper upbringing, Mm -hmm. the proper start in this profession, uh, that's occurring uh, far more than than I like to see out there. I've dedicated the last 40 years to training investigators using the best possible resources out there. Find the best, most knowledgeable person to teach a particular uh, segment of fire investigation training. And, and the first place to start is finding somebody that understands what is left in the aftermath of a fire. And that's basically the fire patterns that are left in a building. And a very simple way to say is if I show you a fingerprint and you're not experienced and knowledgeable in fingerprints, you go, well, that doesn't tell me anything. 
but look at how many people we identify through fingerprints. Mm -hmm. So if you know what you're looking for and you know what you're looking at, you have you can form a lot of opinions that are very sound out of just looking at that fingerprint. Same thing happens when you walk in that room that's burnt out or that house that's burnt out. We call them fire movement patterns. So you start looking at fire movement patterns. And, and what do they tell you? They tell you where this fire came from. Usually which the sign- direction it was burning. Right. I'm, I'm sorry. Mike, no, I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure that we put in there that that uh, we utilize the scientific method, uh, which was not always utilized in the past, uh, to get to that uh, area of origin. And you can continue now. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, I, I think that's that's good because the the scientific method is used by all sciences. The engineers use it the the medical industry uses it. Everybody uses it. And even though many of us were using it before uh, NFPA came out with a guide on how to conduct fire investigation, uh, we, we didn't realize that we were following that. And there were some areas that we shortcut it. And when the when the guide came out in the early 1990s, I think it, it first hit the presses in 92 and came out, there was a lot of controversy in, in this business. It's been revised every three years ever since 92, and a new document keeps coming out and with more information and with more guidelines and with more uh, protocol on how you need to or what you need to follow in order to come up with a scientifically based uh, opinion that people can rely upon and and even though we have that in the in the uh, world of fire investigation today we still end up with multiple opinions You've got one investigator thinking it's arson. You've got another investigator thinking it's accidental. You've got one investigator thinking it's the refrigerator, and you've got another investigator thinking, no, it was unattended food on the stove that caused the fire. So even that hasn't taken away all of the controversy that goes on in this profession. And that's only going to be settled by people understanding and being able to go back to the origin of the fire first, not worrying about the cause. Get to the origin of your fire. Throw everything else out the window. Just look at the burn patterns. And can I get back to where this fire started? Then I'll know whether it's the refrigerator or the food on the stove because they're going to be in different locations. So if I'm at the right location, I've got a far better chance of coming up with the right cause of the fire. And Tom, you you just pointed something out. I wanted to go from the area of origin into the cause. 
uh, talk a little bit about the undetermined and how that doesn't necessarily mean, I don't know, I don't know. But what talk about undetermined a little bit and what effect that has had on, on fire investigation. Sure. Undetermined uh, is, is promoted in a couple different ways. The scientific method says that you will identify all possible hypotheses. That means anything possible that could have caused this fire. And you'll identify all of those before you start looking at one. And once you get those identified, then you're going to test those against all the known facts and information pertaining to this fire. And what you're going to try to do is eliminate those or prove that 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 could have occurred in a particular direction. But if you can't disprove that this is a possibility, then it stays, I always say to the jury, look at the counsel table out there and put all your facts up on the table. Now we're going to take each one of these possibilities, we're going to compare it to all those facts, and if it says, hey, we can't eliminate this, we leave it up on the table. At the end of testing all these possible things, and that can be discarded smoking materials, it can be electrical, it could be the kitchen stove, it could be, and the list goes on, it could be incendiary, it could be, sometimes you have seven or eight possibilities that you have to test. If you've got two or more of those up there, that means if you pick one of those two, you're just guessing. Mm -hmm. you're, you're taking your best guess. And we decided back in 1992, we don't want anybody's best guess anymore. We want you to be able to back up your opinion with scientific material that supports what you're telling us occurred here. And if you can't do that, then you say that's an undetermined fire. That doesn't mean that you're an incompetent investigator. That might mean that you're a, a exceptionally good investigator. Right. And you ended up with this being undetermined. Now, the other thing is fire destroys stuff. So when, when you are looking at fire patterns, the less damage you have, the more patterns you have to look at. The more damage occurs, the more these patterns disappear. So the same thing can happen to you in the area of origin. When you go out to that house and the whole thing is burnt to the ground, uh, you're not following any fire patterns. I, I went to a to a mountain cabin one time. It's burnt to the ground. There's the foundation around the fireplace sitting in the middle, mm -hmm. and everything else is charred debris laying in what we call the black hole. <laughs> and I said, well, there, there's no way to tell what caused this fire by looking at what's here. Well, 
the guy that was there before me interviewed the homeowner. And the homeowner said, when he said, well, did, was there anything here that, that you had a problem with or it didn't work properly? And he said, well, yeah, the, the light out on the front porch would go on and off. Aha, that's it. The cause of this fire is electrical. <laughs> the light malfunctioned and burnt down the cabin. Oh, no. Well, that's that's not using anything scientific. That's just a wild ass guess. Yes. That <laughs> something might have went wrong. Now, what really played this out because one insurance company was looking at another insurance company. Uh, what really played this out was when we checked with the power company, the power had been turned off up there for six months. <laughs> so there was no power in the building at the time this building burnt to the ground. I'm sorry so, to say I've had some similar ones where uh, they, yes, they, it, they just it, call it. It's just, you just have to learn the proper way to do it, take the necessary time to do it. And that's much easier when you're working for a public agency than it is when you're working for a private company. They want to get you out there. They want to get their answer as fast as they can get it because it means they spent less money to do it. And sometimes it's just adding to the amount of the claim. They're not going to get anything back. They don't want to spend any more than they have to. But if you're not allowed to do it properly, then they're going to end up with bad answers. Right. Well, and on the private side, and I, I, this is one thing that's good about the private side, they will invest, uh, insurance carriers, uh, attorneys, et cetera, will, in, will invest in getting, if you need an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer or someone to come and look at the scene with you, they will invest in that. The um, not, not always available on the public side, um, is there any uh, techno any new technology that you think uh, helps in determining uh, the fire uh, causes, et cetera? Well, I think our laboratories are constantly coming up with new technology that allows us to identify, for an example, a particular flammable liquid. We can identify uh, turpentine from gasoline or diesel fuel from gasoline or uh, a number of different things today much better than we could, you know, decades ago. And all of that, I think, helps us more and more. We also have uh, continue to, to develop new techniques out there. Arc mapping is one that is kind of controversial right now. There's some people believing that you can identify the origin of your fire by looking at arc marks throughout this building. There are others that say, no, all that does is help support. Uh, I happen to believe that, that the best thing you've got is the pattern that's left on the wall. Right. If you 
if you, through your training, learn enough about what fire does, where it goes, what it leaves behind it, you can come in and put that puzzle back together. It's a very time-consuming job, though. As you know, Mike, you've got to layer the building. Exactly. If you go in there and the roof of the building is laying down on the floor and you're walking on it, you're going to take those layers off one at a time. You're going to look at the top. You're going to look at the bottom. You're going to look at what was in the attic. You're going to look at uh, what was below the ceiling level. You're going to look at all what was below the, the level of the table. Did the fire come up? Did the fire come down? And you're going to establish through burn patterns the effects of what's left after that fire leaves that area. And you're going to come back to an area where that fire originated. That's when you then gear in on, okay, what was my heat source? Or what are the heat sources in this area of fire origin? We've got too many investigators today that just say, Oh, I'll put everybody on notice that did anything in this building in the last 10 years. (laughs) Well, that's just somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. All they need to do is get down to that corner or that area of origin, and it might be a three-foot area, might be a three-inch area. And the closer you can get it in, the less... uh, possibilities you've got on the outside uh, that may have caused this. The the toaster sitting on on the kitchen countertop didn't start the fire over here in the corner. Right. Do you believe, do you believe, Tom, that that fire investigators in general need to um, to more, uh, well, to study um, fire dynamics to where and fire dynamics is where the fire starts spread and develop um, that seems to be sometimes uh, lacking because they won't use the scientific method on the investigation going to areas of burn unburned areas to to the most severely burned areas uh, uh, and I know CCAI also emphasizes fire dynamics is that correct yeah, fire dynamics is nothing more than understanding the f- growth of the fire from its inception to its extinguishment. Right. And if you understand that, then you're going to, all these fire patterns that I've been talking about you looking at, this progression of this fire is going to fit in those in what you're finding. So that's how your fire progressed up. We all know that heat rises and fire follows its own heat pattern. So it's gonna go up until it hits something. And commonly in a room, it's the ceiling. And then where does it go from there? Does it go across the room? Uh, I, I always ask people, put four open buckets of gasoline in the corner of a of a, triangular room and set one of them on fire which bucket is going to go next where is the heat going to go and what effects 
that heat movement pattern. There, there, we go back to the basics. There's three things, fuel, heat, and oxygen. You have to have all three of those in order to create a fire. And then once you have that, two of those still play in. You've got the heat going, but your fuel load could draw your fire in a particular direction or oxygen can draw it in a particular direction. And you have to understand how much of that takes place. We have what we re to, refer to as flashover of a room. I, In training, I take two identical rooms. I set the fire in the same place, and I say, this room's going to go to flashover in less than four minutes. This one's going to go to flashover in around 34 minutes. And you look at the puzzled look on people's faces. Well, how could that happen? We have the same fuel load. We have the fire starting in the same place. We started it in the same manner. Why is one taking longer than the other? That's fire dynamics. That's understanding how fire burns and what the results are that comes out of that. Right. And if you can understand that and now NFPA says you should or you shall do that at every fire that you have. Create the fire dynamics. You can use that as one of the facts that you put on the table to to test all your hypothesis against. That's how strong fire dynamics is in the mind of the people drafting that document. Right, and 1033 now says that uh, you, you must uh, explore every potential area of origin. So uh, that's the new addition. Um, I think I, Donna wanted to ask you something. Well, we were talking earlier. Uh, we wanted to get from you. You've had so much experience, Tom. Uh, share a story with us, something the listeners would find interesting. Uh, let me share with you. I did a fire up in a mountain community. Uh, Mount Baldy is close to the Los Angeles area, and and there's a small mountain community up there, and a lot of the cabins are leased out by the federal government because it's federal forest land up where that is. And this place burned, and a county investigator went by and said, yep, it's electrical, see ya. Just so happened that he was the supervisor of the unit, yeah, and he was going on vacation the next morning. And he got up there late in the afternoon. So he made his call and he left. Hmm. When I arrived up there for the insurance company, I noted that nobody had processed this fire scene. Nobody had dug it out, we call it, removing the debris layer by layer and looking at what happened. When I did that, it took the best part of a day for two people. And in the end, we realized that this fire started in a trash can on the floor in front of a stove in the kitchen. And there was no 
accidental heat source there. The occupants of this building claimed to be elsewhere for several days, so there was nobody there and available. Well, it turned out that the community let me know that there were these two young ladies that had moved in with Jack, who had lived up there for a long number of years, and the community kind of watched out for him. Uh, as one lady told me, he wasn't the sharpest tack in the box, but he was a super nice, nice man, and he was trying to help these young ladies out. And he let them move in and live with him. They talked him into signing over power of attorney to all his stuff. Mm -hmm. They bought several items with his money, like a new Corvette and a new uh, SUV and a new motorhome. And uh, they had put some of his property up for sale. I'm sorry, what was his name? (laughs) (laughs) They referred to him as Old Jack. Old Jack. You know, we got to find out what happened to Old Jack. And I said, well, I'd like to help you, but that's not what I'm here for. Turn that over to the sheriff's department. Oh, we've called them, and the FBI's been out here, and they went on and on and on. Anyway, to end this story... The volunteer fire chief who handled the Mount Baldy Fire Department didn't, he didn't feel that this was an electrical fire because of all the other circumstances around there. Jack had disappeared Mm. all of a sudden, and these two girls were living in his house. And first they turned in a claim to the insurance company for stolen electronics Hmm. out of a motorhome. And then uh, they had a power of attorney and the insurance company paid them off. I think it was $80,000 for these electronics that got stolen. And uh, they, they made good on their claim and now we're about 14 months later and we have a fire claim Mm -hmm. so where they they dig jack up where they dig jack jack up did they dig him up (laughs) (laughs) go ahead yeah uh they had me do a tape recorded interview with these two power of attorneys uh, that lasted quite quite long because they wouldn't interview separately so I had to interview Mm -hmm. them together Mm -hmm. and I got them to admit to a lot of things in their past and their life that was going on and the volunteer fire chief called the county back out and said hey this investigator thinks that this is arson and you guys are calling it electrical. And they went back out there and they looked at it and they said, yeah, the supervisor was in a hurry. He's really not a fire investigator. He's a supervisor. We agree this is electrical and we're going to go after these, or we agree that this is arson. We're going to go after these 
two two women. And that's the last I heard about it. Never seemed to go anywhere, didn't seem to do anything. And two years later, I get a call from an investigator in a DA's office. And he says, do you remember this fire you did up here? He said, I think I can put together an insurance fraud case against these two females uh, because they they turned in a huge loss on this cabin and the contents and et cetera. And I said to him, well, yeah, and while you're, and he said, I'm going to go out and serve a search warrant, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I said, while you're at it, find out what happened to old Jack. Right. (laughs) And it so happened that they split up for a short period of time. They were a, a lesbian couple, and they separated, and one of them ended up with a, psychologist that was treating her she moved in with her for six months and then they split and came back together and uh, when he tracked down that psychologist and said do you know so and so and so and so she said oh you want to talk about the murder Uh oh (laughs) and she had the one that was partners with her for a while, confess to exactly what they did with old Jack and his body and all the rest of it. So some two years after this crime happened, because a good investigator picked it up Mm -hmm. and decided to put it together, he was able to get one of them to uh, plead out plead guilty to murdering Jack and setting the fire and the other one went to trial and I got to testify in that trial regarding the origin and cause of the fire and that individual was found guilty of homicide and arson on that case. So that's kind of a combination there where the privates come in afterwards, maybe can spend a little more time at, uh, doing the job or had a little m- more skill level at doing the job than the first person out there. And then the same thing happens with the person that does the criminal investigation. It's just not good enough to identify that, yeah, we have an arson. The next step is you got to find out who committed that arson and be able to tie them to that scene at the time that the arson occurred and show uh, why they did what they, they did. Now, even though a motive isn't part of the crime of arson, juries understand it when they understand the motive behind what caused you to do or that person to do what they did. So it's always good to be able to prove motive, whether it's required or not. Absolutely. Um, Tom, we're, we're getting into the end of the show here. 
uh, we were going to talk to you about wildland fires, but if you don't mind, we'll uh, do another show with you at a later date on wildland fires. I know that you worked the, the largest one, uh, the Thomas Fire, and uh, with all the fatalities that ensued, etc. So uh, would that be all right with you? Are you willing to come back sometime in the future? Sure, anytime. Okay. Wildland fire investigation is extremely important to all of us in this country because of what it costs us uh, and the losses that we suffer from it. I really appreciate your being here. I do too. And yes, that'll that'll take a whole show just in itself. And I do want to say something out there to the investigators, especially the ones coming into the profession. Um, a lot of our shows and what we hear from experts that have been around since Pluto was a pup like Mike, Mike is, uh, can be very daunting. But I, I, I need you to understand that there's there's many fire science courses out there, even at university and college level, and it would behoove you to enroll in those, even if you take a few courses while you're gaining your experience and you're being peer-reviewed by your supervisors and, uh, say, you're with the fire department, state fire marshal's office, investigators, and so forth. So I just wanted to say don't take this information and then allow it to dissuade you from being in this. No one's expecting you to be a scientist uh, with a Ph.D., just to understand fire dynamics and fire science, because fire is a science. It's a chemical reaction, and it behaves a particular way. And as you experience fire patterns and as you experience uh, heat transfer and all the you know fuel loads and things like that, you piece it together, and it's, it's pretty simple from that point on as far as determining origin and cause. So. Yes, we're going to add um, physics, add a class in physics and interviewing, interviewing for, um, that's, take a criminal justice class. Well, and interviewing too, just witnesses in, the, in itself. I mean, that will help you know where things, the occupant of the structure uh, or the driver of a vehicle, they're going to let you know where things were or weren't, quite frankly. So this will be uh, the end of this particular show. Tom, thank you so very much for being here. We appreciate you, sir. Thank you for having me, Mike, both you and Donna. Thank you. Great to, great to talk to you, Tom. Same here. Okay, so next, next week, come back to... Fire Clue, the podcast. We're going to have Dr. Ikov on next week, so it'll be a good show, too. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye now.